Albania had suffered really one of the worst dictatorships of the whole 20th century, the dictatorship of Enver Hoxha. His Albania was really a kind of European North Korea. Hoxha was a perfect totalitarian monster, and Albania under him was a perfect, if that's the word, totalitarian state. It was really his personal dungeon, Hoxha's, for 40 years. And so while I was there, I just wondered whether the dictator had had children. And that, my friends, is what we in the business call a really interesting question. Children of dictators. What do they turn out like? How? What, what kind of people are they? What kind of lives do they lead? That's a fascinating subject, and the man that you just heard wrote a book about it. That was Jay Nordlinger, a senior editor at National Review Magazine. Writes regularly for both the uh, print edition and National Review Online. He has a regular column there called Impromptus, uh, which is a fine work uh, on a regular basis. And uh, Jay was here at the Acton Institute last week as we record this. Uh, he was here on October 29th as part of our Acton Lecture Series to talk about his new book, which is called Children of Monsters, An Inquiry into the Lives of the Sons and Daughters of Dictators. A fine book. I devoured it in just a couple of days, and I'm pleased to award it my uh, Radio Free Acton Five Star Award of Excellence, which if you've listened to Radio Free Acton before, you'll know that that's something that I just made up on the spot here, and I've never uh, never awarded it before, but Jay... Uh, Nordlinger certainly receives it uh, for Children of Monsters. Fascinating interview, a fascinating topic. That'll be coming up in just a little bit. But before we get to that interview, I want to highlight a couple of events on the Acton Institute's jam-packed 2015 events calendar. Uh, you can check out the full events calendar at acton.org events. There's a lot of stuff there to look at, but we do have a couple of events coming up this week that I want to highlight and make sure you're aware of. If you can make it, they're going to be great uh, great things to attend. First of all, uh, it, I should mention, as we're recording this, it's November 2nd. Uh, both of these events will be happening November 5th, 2015. The first one happens right here in Grand Rapids, Michigan, at the Acton Building in our beautiful Mark Murray Auditorium. Uh, Dr. Bradley Berzer is going to be in town as part of our Acton Lecture Series, and his topic for the day is Russell Kirk. Now, Dr. Berzer is uniquely positioned to talk about uh, Russell Kirk as he holds the Russell Amos Kirk Chair in History at Hillsdale College and is the author of a biography that is being published this week on Russell Kirk. It's called Russell Kirk, American Conservative. Uh, Russell Kirk has a history here with us at Acton. He was part of our original board of advisors when the Institute was founded. His last public lecture prior to his death was delivered as part of our Acton Lecture Series. Uh, and he talked about Lord Acton, the historian. Well, uh, he delivered a lecture on Acton, and now Acton is pleased to have Dr. Berzer come in and deliver a lecture on Kirk. So that's this week, Thursday, November 5th, right here at the Acton Institute's Mark Murray Auditorium, 98 Fulton Street, Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, doors open at 1130. Head to acton.org events to register. Price is $15, uh, $10 if you're a full-time student. And we'd love to have you here. There's a lunch included and a book signing afterward. It's going to be a good event, and we hope to see you there. In the evening on November 5th, we have a second event. It's a, it's a big day for us here at Acton. Uh, we will be in Chicago. We're packing up the car and heading down to the Windy City to the University Club of Chicago at the corner of Monroe Street and Michigan Avenue, right across from 
beautiful Millennium Park on the beautiful lakefront of Lake Michigan in Chicago. And we are going to be having our sixth annual Open Mic Night. Uh, this is a great event every year. We invite everyone uh, who wants to come and ask some questions, engage in discussion, uh, to come on down. Father Robert Sirico is going to be on our panel this year. He's the one guy that's confirmed. We have a few other folks who are going to be joining, but uh, right now, as of as of this recording, the other panelists are to be announced. But I can assure you we're going to have a good panel again this year. We always do. And really, we invite you to come down with your questions, with, uh, with your uh, debatable items, and uh, step up to the mic and have a conversation with, with folks from the Acton Institute. We welcome it, and it's always a great evening of conversation uh, in Chicago. Uh, this, As I said, University Club of Chicago, right at Monroe and Michigan. Uh, registration starts at 6 p.m. Uh, the program begins at 7. There's a dessert reception to follow uh, one thing to note, if you're going to, to join us for Open Mic Night, the University Club does have a dress code, business casual, so no blue jeans, please. Uh, but we'd love to have you there. Uh, price for the evening is uh, $25 for an individual. Students, uh, we knocked that down to $15. Uh, so please do head over to actin.org slash events to register for Open Mic Night in Chicago, Thursday, November 5th. Well, I am pleased to be joined today in the Acton Studios for Radio Free Acton by Jay Nordlinger. He is a senior editor at National Review Magazine, a magazine that I've read for a long time. Uh, he also pops up uh, in National Review Online a lot, which is another source that I've read for a long time. And he's here today at the Acton Institute participating, and this is probably the most glorious title yet, uh, participant in the Acton Lecture Series. It is glorious. Let, could, let's could, not underestimate it. There's like some angelic, there, there's angelic music in the studio. I don't think it comes through on the microphone, but that's what happens when we talk about the Acton Lecture Series. And J, Jay was here today to talk about uh, his new book, which I have to say, as soon as I heard, uh, I, th I think you must have written something about it in one of your columns that you were beginning work on a book about the children of dictators. As soon as I, as soon as I read that, I was like, oh, I got to get that book. I got to put that on my my to do list because this book and it, it's titled "Children of Monsters: An Inquiry into the Sons and Daughters of Dictators." It is fascinating. It's uh, it's it's actually right in my sweet spot of sort of uh, mid to late twentieth century history, uh, combined with uh, looking at dictatorial regimes, which are always well, they're terrible, but they're interesting. Uh, there's there's a lot of weird stuff that happens there. And it's it's an it's a different way to look into the lives of these uh, of a number of dictators. And I, I got to ask you first off, Jay, uh, how did you come up with the idea to to write this book? Uh, why a book about the children of dictators? What was the genesis of the idea? Well, some years ago, I was in Albania for the first time, and I like saying that because it's such a boast, you know, to have been in Albania even once. But I have been back actually. So the first time I was in Albania, I was speaking under State Department auspices. So there's another boast. Um, I'm pretty much out now. Okay, good. Yeah. And um, I'll replay those later just to make sure that we, <laughs> we get them in again. Um, and this is not funny. Uh, Albania had suffered really one of the worst dictatorships of the whole 20th century, the dictatorship of Enver Hoxha. His Albania was really a kind of European North Korea. In fact, Hoxha admired Kim Il-sung uh, a lot. That's a that's a messed up worldview right there, right from the start, isn't it? Though, yes, he was. He, Hoja was a perfect totalitarian monster, 
and Albania under him was a perfect, if that's the word, totalitarian state. It was a hermetically sealed dungeon. Uh, no one came in, no one went out. It was really his personal dungeon, Hoja's, for 40 years. And so while I was there, I just wondered whether the dictator had had children. Uh, he was gone at that point, dead, and communism was pretty much dead. Uh, and I couldn't imagine if Hoja did have children, what their lives were like. Uh, could they go out? How did people treat them? Did they keep their last name? What did they think of dad? And so on. So I thought that this would make a good magazine piece, the Hoja children. And then I thought, well, you know, you could do a survey of such sons and daughters and make a book of it called Children of Monsters. Unfortunately, we have a good catalog of monsters to survey. We do. We do. A couple of them didn't have children. I think primarily of Lenin. Also, Ho Chi Minh didn't have children, but most of them did. That's true. Is there a, an insight that you can gain into a dictator through looking at their children? Is, is, yes. is there some, something that you could draw from that? Well, it does tell you more about the man, uh, the human side, or the further inhuman side, if you will. Uh, some of these guys were uh, not very nice fathers, just as they weren't not very nice people at large. Uh, there are generalities you can take away from this book. There are themes, commonalities, points. I do a little bit of generalizing and a little bit of psychologizing, mainly at the beginning at the, and at the end. But I don't want to do too much of it because mainly these are individual stories. And all of these men and women, the sons and daughters of dictators, have had a common fate to be the child of a dictator. They have dealt with that fate or hand in their various individual ways. And so I try not to be too um, psychologically minded or too theme minded. These themes do emerge, but I think they emerge naturally when you tell the stories of the children. They don't need to be forced, as some I think would be tempted to do. Now, one of the things that I noticed as I was reading the book that it actually sort of surprised me is, and honestly, I don't know what I was expecting going in, because when I think of people like Stalin or Pol Pot or uh, 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 Tojo, I don't think of, you know, a wife and kids and a nice family life. No. You don't think of their children. So I think going into the book, I had the impression or the uh, the the, uh, the belief that I read about a lot of people who were all bad. Yes. Um, you, you, it, it was just kind of the expectation. But the reality is there's a really wide range of outcomes um, that, that you see in this book uh, among the children of dictators. Well, you, ha you have people like uh, Stalin's daughter Svetlana who defected to the United States, who ended up writing uh, a number of memoirs mm -hmm. and es essentially rejected her father's rule, although she backtracked on, on the morality of the West versus the morality of the Soviet Union later in life. Mm -hmm. she, she, you know, there, there was some uh, tension there. You did read this book, Mark. I did. I'm, I'm I did. really pleased. But, Thank you so much. But then on the other hand, you have uh, people like Uday and Kusei Hussein, mm. who were the personif the very personification of, of wickedness, uh, evil. Go ahead and say evil. Yeah, the evil. Yeah. As Norman Podhoritz refers to evil as the strongest of all epithets, and it certainly applies to the family in orbit of Saddam Hussein. Uh, yes, I, I was trying to come up with something a little bit more evocative than evil, but I don't no, know that no, there that's, is. That's, that's is. as far as you can go. Uh, but then, then you also have people who are sort of in between, uh, who, who on the one hand seem to love their parents or respect their father, uh, who uh, have no problem necessarily keeping his name, uh, and in some cases actually 
do do their best to sort of rehabilitate the image of their father. And it's just this range of, of outcomes that I did not expect. Mark, in a sense, I don't really need to be here because what you're saying is absolutely <laughs> true. And you know this book very well. And, and all I can say is that's right. It's exactly right. Now, that, let me let me ask you this: Since you're the author of the book and you spent the most time with all these uh, with all these people through through your research, can you can you come up with a worst child of a dictator? Is there is there one in particular that you look at and go, "Ooh, bad bad outcome there"? Well, because you're such a good uh, conscientious reader of this book, you know I address this, and I will I will I will say it here on the air. Um, really, probably Ude Hussein the older of the two sons of Saddam. It's hard to imagine anyone worse than he. But then I bear in mind the so-called successor sons, those who succeeded their father as dictator. We have two of those in North Korea and one in Syria. We also had Baby Doc in Haiti, but he was not as... um, uh, not as monstrous as the people we're talking about. Okay. It's, it's sort of a, you said in the, in, the, in the speech, you have to grade on a curve sometimes. In the dictator business, you grade on a curve. Mm-hmm. That's right. And as bad as Uday was, can I call him worse than Kim Jong-il and Kim Jong-un and Bashar Assad? I mean, more than 200,000 people have been killed in Syria and 3 million displaced. But I do, in a sense... Um, Uday was the psycho son you might think of when you think of sons of dictators in your worst nightmares. In, in a way, you could look and, and be thankful that he never had the opportunity to actually have his hands directly on the levers of power in Iraq. That's right. Like his father did. He, he, I, I can't imagine that he would have been the equivalent of his father. He would have had to have been worse. The, the, the man, when, when you talk about Uday Hussein and, and the stories that you tell in the book, just the the outright wickedness uh, he 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 seemed to almost turn rape into just a just a, a pastime. pastime yeah yeah that's exactly right um it would have been hard to do worse than saddam hussein i don't think that if saddam had lived i don't think he would have passed power onto uday i think he recognized that uday was really too crazy to serve if that's the word as dictator yeah. especially after an assassination attempt on, attempt on uday which left him with some physical problems and probably did no good for his psyche. Uh, probably not. No. Mm-hmm. It, it, I think. It, I think it probably would have been the younger brother Kusei. Okay. Let Let me ask you this. This is this is maybe a little bit of a a, a more interesting question. Which out of all these families, obviously dictators are notorious uh, notorious for being very big into self promotion. But sometimes their families are a matter of mystery. Uh, which family did you find the easiest to research in your in your uh, work, and which was the most difficult to come up with information on? I should really scan my table of contents, but let me do it off the top of my head. Uh, Svetlana Stalin helps us by writing three memoirs. And, um, of course, there have been many, many books about Stalin and Stalin's Soviet Union. I would say the, the, the dictator's family uh, about which information is scarcest is Mengistu's, Mengistu of Ethiopia, known as, as a matter of fact, as the Stalin of Ethiopia. (laughs) Yes. Uh, He was a a genocidal dictator, and he has lived for these many decades under the protection of Mugabe in Zimbabwe. And uh, we know very little about his family. We know that there's a wife and her name. We know that there are three children and their names, a daughter and two sons. We know that the daughter became a doctor. But these people are forbidden to speak and to be public at all in Zimbabwe. That's the uh, the terms of, of their exile. 
So, and there's a certain, I call it an omerta around these dictators' families. And uh, there's, there are people who know about the Mengistus, uh, but they really aren't talking. Another question pops to mind, uh, this just, just off the top of your head. Is there a region of the world that tends to spawn worse dictators? Or is it pretty evenly spread, in your opinion? That is such a good question, and I've never been asked it, although I've asked myself that question a couple of times. <laughs> Let me answer this way. What a good question. I want to say the Arab world, and I want to say Africa. But then I remind myself, what about Hitler in the heart of Europe, Germany? Yeah. Germany was the probably the best educated uh, culture, society, generation there in the 1930s in the history of mankind. And Nazism rose right there. And so that shuts my mouth on the subject at large. I just can't say. Pops up all over the place. You, you know, that's, that's, that's very true. And honestly, yeah, it's right in the heart of Europe, right, yep. in, right in the heart of the North. I, I automatically, when you think of, of dicta, it is easy to go to the Arab or the African mm -hmm. world in, in that region. Mm -hmm. but, but really, the most, well, I, I guess you'd have to throw Mao in as well as mm -hmm. the, mo the most in terms and of Stalin. body count. But Stalin, yeah. Stalin yeah. and Hitler, between the two, what, uh, 30 million, roughly? Well, um, it depends on whether you include war casualties, but yeah. uh, millions, yes, that's true. Just just an unbelievable body count that we've uh, the, that the uh, the world has amassed all over the place, but Europe. You know, I'm tempted to. You ask such an interesting question. I, I'm tempted to say that the African and Arab dictators are the ghastliest. That they have the greatest imagination when it comes to torture and depravity. I could tell and do tell many stories about Bokassa and Saddam and others, but then you think of Dr. Mengele's laboratory. Oh, yes. And you think of the crematoria in general, and yeah, it's a it's a human virus, a human disease, Absolutely. not confined to region. It, it occurs to me that perhaps the reason uh, one is inclined to think of um, African dictators is because they tend to be the most colorful as yes. well. I mean, that, that is such a good point. They, they, they're just, you know, the, if, <laughs> yeah. in the case of the one, uh, and I, you'll have to remind me of the name, who, who actually crowned himself emperor. Yeah, Bokassa of the Bokassa, Central yes. Africa. Yeah, And, and he, he, you look at the pictures and he's got uh, the beautiful uniform yeah. and the, the, the cords around his sleeves and the medals. and Ermine, yeah. Whereas Stalin, you it know, was 100 you see degrees a, that day, I think. Yeah, you, you see know. a picture of Stalin and he's usually pretty reserved in his dress. That's and, right. Austere. That, Steer. That yes. might be it. Well, let me let me ask one more question, and this uh, this is one I want you to speculate a little bit. Maybe maybe uh, look into the future here. Yeah. Uh, say you were planning, let's say twenty thirty years down the road, to write Children of Monsters Volume Two. Yeah. Uh, are there any? Is there anybody on the international scene right now? Perhaps uh, dictator wannabes or uh, hopefuls, uh, if if we can use that term. Who are who are out there right now? Who you think might either who either have kids now or might go on to have a career in uh, in dictatorhood? <laughs> who, who might end up qualifying for for Children of Monsters Volume Two in say uh, twenty forty? Yeah. Well, you know, you have to be pretty bad to have made my book. Uh, this yeah. book I've just written. Someone here at Acton said to me uh, uh, just a while ago, but you didn't put in Mugabe. 
<laughs> and I said, oh, he went nearly bad enough. And the man said, well, he killed a lot of people. You know, I said, not nearly enough for my book. No. <laughs> now, there are a couple of them. You have there standards are, is what you're saying. I have, you have ex- standards. exactly right. You know, bo- body count <laughs> matters. Yes. And so, you know, Samosa, no way. You know, uh, and, you know, you could have done Trujillo in, in the Dominican Republic. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, and a couple of these characters really don't belong in a book called Children of Monsters. But as I said, you sometimes create on a curve. Yeah. Um, you know, we have this second Assad in Syria, and his first child is named Hafez, like the first Assad dictator. And he is already being talked about as the next dictator. It's hard to believe there could be three Assads in Syria, but then it was hard to believe there could be three Kims dictators in North Korea. True, and, and uh, the the current Assad does seem to have some staying power, unfortunately. Uh, yeah, he was supposed to be a goner, what was it, four years ago? Yeah, I believe Three that years was, ago? yes. Yeah, he's not much of a goner. And, um, you know, could there be a fourth Kim? Certainly not. But would we have said that there could be a third Kim? Yeah. And I'll tell you something funny. Not funny, but you get my point. Gallows um, humor. You got Papa mm-hmm. Doc, you got Baby Doc. Well, Baby Doc's son, Nicholas, Nicolas, is now an advisor to the Haitian president. How about that? So. <laughs> it's uh, it's a vicious cycle, it seems. Uh, Jay Nordlinger, I, I, I want to once again plug the book, uh, Children of Monsters, An Inquiry into the Sons and Daughters of Dictators. It's an encounter book. You can pick it up on Amazon.com. Uh, and uh, any reputable bookseller that's interested in selling good books, at the very least, uh, fascinating, fascinating book. And um, I wish you well as you uh, as you go around to promote it. And I, I hope people, uh, I hope our listeners pick it up and give it a read because it it really is a fascinating book. I'm grateful to you, Mark. You talk about that, about that book better than I do. I wish I, could, <laughs> I wish I could take you on the road. Thank well, you, you know, very much. You know, I, I'm sure that we could the, the negotiate. Check is, the check is in the mail. We could negotiate some sort of a rate that would allow me to do that. I just okay. have to clear it with my wife. Okay. I want to turn right now. Uh, we have another guest in our studio, and she's uh, she's a bit shy, but I wanted to to take a take an opportunity to talk with Katie. She better get o- she better get over it soon. Yes, yes. Katie Christofferson is with us in studio. And Katie, first of all, I want to welcome you to Acton. It's great to have you here today. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. And uh, you are here as a representative of the National Review Institute. We all know about National Review on Dead Tree, uh, as Jonah Goldberg uh, christened it many years back. We all know about National Review Online. The National Review Institute might be something that people aren't as familiar with. Uh, can you give us a little bit of an idea of what is the National Review Institute? What, what is it that you, uh, that you work towards? The Institute is the nonprofit sister organization to National Review Magazine. We exist to preserve and promote the legacy of William F. Buckley Jr. and also to complement the mission of National Review Magazine. So one of our projects is regional partnership events, which has allowed us to bring Jay here to the Acton Institute in Michigan today. Which we're very thankful for. Yes, it's it's really great to be able to bring the wonderful talent and wisdom of National Review writers and editors out to allied organizations around the country where most National Review readers are. Is there a, a place that our listeners could go to find out a little bit more information about National Review Institutes? Yes, listeners can learn more about our programs where some of their favorite writers might be going next at nrinstitute.org. Wonderful. And Katie, I, I really want to thank you uh, for, for coming on and sharing that. I know you're a little tiny bit nervous about it, but you did a great job. So I want to thank you for being here today. And uh, Jay, as well, I want to thank you for coming in. It's been great to have you here at Acton, and we hope you can come back someday. And with that, 
we have to bring our podcast to a close. It's a very sad thing to do, and yet it's a necessary part of life. Podcasts need to have an ending, and this seems to be the point that we end this one. Once again, I want to thank uh, Jay Nordlinger, a senior editor at National Review Magazine and regular columnist both in the uh, print edition and the National Review Online edition. Nationalreview.com, of course, is where you go to find all the good stuff that the folks at NRO put together. Uh, Katie Christofferson as well. Thank you to you. Uh, it was great of you to be willing to join us on the podcast for a few moments. And as she mentioned, uh, if you want some more information about the National Review Institute and uh, the efforts that they make to carry on the legacy of William F. Buckley Jr., head over to nrinstitute.org. Well, that is our podcast for today. Thank you so much for joining us. We will be back with another edition of Radio Free Acton, hopefully in the not-too-distant future. In the meantime, you have a great day, and we will talk to you next time on Radio Free Acton, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. Have a good day, everyone. 